Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let's continue with the day of the murders, August 4, 1892. Remember I told you that the coroner for Bristol County, Dr. Dolan, happened to be driving by the Borden residence on 2nd Street around quarter of 12. He saw a crowd, he stopped, he got out, and he got right on the case earlier than he would have otherwise. They didn't need to track him down and bring him over. One thing that was interesting about Dolan and his participation in the case was that he joined in with the police in terms of searching, especially searching down in the cellar. And I think it was a bit unusual. I think the coroner is not really a... Um, extension of the district attorney's office or an extension of the police department. The coroner, I think, is meant to be, although a county employee or a state employee, he or she is meant to be independent and not ally himself with the prosecution necessarily. Now, he could have argued that he was simply preserving evidence or pointing out evidence that he wanted preserved, and that's fair enough. But I think he quickly became allied with the police in a way that might not have been quite kosher. I, having said all that, I will admit that I never worked with a coroner when I was in the district attorney's office. So I may have this wrong. And it may be that the coroner really is, in many ways, part of the prosecutorial system. One of the things that Dolan focuses on are the hatchets, and he seems to think that the shingle hatchet, the one that looks like a miniature medieval battle axe that has the claw hammer back, he thinks that's significant. And at some point, he has that brought upstairs and put on the table in the dining room. The way they handled this evidence was a lot more cavalier than evidence would be handled nowadays. Nowadays, it gets tagged immediately, it gets put in plastic bags, it's secured, it's locked up right away, unless a detective or a forensics expert is on the scene and needs to look at it, it's secured as quickly as possible and taken to a safe place. And here, the hatchets and the axes were left on the property until the following morning. They were removed early the following morning, but they were there overnight. At some point, this sharp hatchet that was the focus of Dolan and the focus of the police for several weeks, that is down in the cellar. It's on the washroom floor. Then at some point, it's up in the dining room. Sawyer handles it, which is a bad idea. Even though they don't have DNA evidence, that technology doesn't exist. They aren't using fingerprint technology yet at that point. They are able to tell whether there is dried blood on objects. The chemical science, the ability to determine and understand blood evidence is still pretty limited. And the expert who testifies for the government at trial, he's a chemistry professor and an MD named Edward Wood. He's a professor at Harvard. He's probably, if not the top expert and forensic expert and forensic chemist in the country, he's one of them. And he testifies under cross-examination that medical science has not quite gotten to the point where it can definitively identify dried human blood. It can say whether blood was probably mammal blood, but whether it's the blood of a dog, a guinea pig, or a person cannot be said with any degree of scientific certainty. So that's how primitive the medical sciences and the chemistry forensics were at that time. 
However, you don't want someone handling a sharp hatchet accidentally cut their finger, have that blood get on the blade, and then have the forensic chemist say there was blood on the blade. At that point, you don't know whether it was the guy who cut his finger accidentally while looking at the hatchet or whether it was Mr. Borden's blood or Mrs. Borden's blood. Because remember, they didn't know there was such a thing as blood types until the early 1900s. So all they'd be able to tell is that there's human blood. The point of all this is that they should have been more careful about handling the evidence. It turns out in the end, it doesn't matter because the shingle hatchet is not the murder weapon. And it gets ruled out after the forensic experts, the medical experts, people that were more qualified than Dolan, people with more credentials. They're brought into the case, a couple of doctors, a guy named Draper and a guy named Cheever. They make careful measurements and a careful study of the wounds in the skulls, and they match it up with this shingle hatchet blade. And they determine that the shingle hatchet blade was too long, that from one end of the cutting edge of the blade until the other end, that was too long, that the hatchet that killed the Bordens would have had to have a shorter cutting edge. So it gets ruled out. One of the things that Fleet does during the day is he focuses on the shingle hatchet, the shingling hatchet, and he hides it in the cellar at one point. He takes it off the washroom floor and he puts it behind some barrels or some boxes in another room in the cellar. Just another example of his bizarre, unprofessional, irrational behavior. They were in charge of the scene. They were on the premises with the permission of Lizzie. Lizzie was the person who had authority to give them permission to search property. Clearly there with her permission, there was no reason to hide this hatchet. There was no reason to think that someone was going to walk off with it. And if Fleet was worried that someone would take the hatchet, he could simply assign one of the patrolmen to watch the two hatchets and the two axes and not to let anybody else touch them without his permission. And in the meantime, he could have decided whether to send them down to the police station to be stored or whether he was going to keep them up at the crime scene in case Dr. Dolan wanted to look at them again or whatever. But he certainly could have secured them, made sure nobody walked off with them. And the idea that he would take this hatchet and go off and hide it in another part of the cellar, it's like what a six-year-old would do if he didn't want someone playing with his favorite boy. And think about the confusion that might have caused. Think about the officers that already knew about that hatchet that had been down in the cellar at different times than Fleet and go back down to see where it is and they can't find it and they raise this commotion and they're saying somebody's stolen what we think is a murder weapon and people are running around like this seems already chaotic enough. This is exactly the sort of thing that the head of the investigation, the guy in charge should not be doing. Let me talk about the doors to the house. I told you that when Alan came right after the murders were reported, he gets there about 20 after 11, he goes to the front door and he testifies later that the bolt, the bolt that is slid across the door, that that was in place. So that's his testimony and he sticks with it. He isn't sure about the deadlock. He says he didn't test the deadlock. But the fact that the bolt was shot or whatever the term is, it was engaged if he's telling the truth, meant that nobody could have come or gone. Presumably, the bolt was reengaged after Mr. Borden came in at 1045. Remember, Bridget lets him in and goes back to washing the windows. She doesn't know what Mr. Borden does. Presumably, Mr. Borden slides the bolt across. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. I'm not sure who else would have done it. Lizzie would have been the only other person. 
if there had been a murderer in the house hiding upstairs, that murderer would, would not likely have slid the bolt across to lock himself in the house. So it appears that the front door was locked pretty much all morning, including with a bolt. We've talked about the side door. There was one other way in and out of the house. That was a bulkhead door at the back of the house that went down into the cellar. And the only person who testifies that it may have been open was Uncle John Morse. He testifies that after he returns to the property around quarter of 12 and he's walking around in the backyard, he thinks he sees the door open. He never says he thinks it is open definitively. And everybody else, all the cops that are down in the cellar that think to check it, they all say it was bolted from the inside and that it could not have been open. So let's assume for purposes of this podcast, this episode, and for the podcast in general, that the only doors that were at all available to somebody to come or go that day were probably the side slash back door, the screen door, and the front door. Well, let me talk about Morse. Morse comes back. His best guess is he arrives around quarter of 12. Now, all the evidence indicates that when he got back, there was already something of a crowd on the street outside the the home, and that it appears there were a number of civilians wandering around the property, including a couple of reporters and maybe a handful of other early arrivers. Morse claims that when he gets back to the house around quarter of 12, he doesn't see anything. He doesn't see any crowd, not anybody out on the street milling around, nobody on the property, nobody. He says he doesn't see a single person. He walks onto the property, and instead of going right to the back door and going into the house, he says he goes back to where the pear trees are because he's in the mood for some fruit, picks up a pear, and he either starts eating it or either that or he just starts walking back to the house. And he says at that point, when he goes to the side door, he is told about the murders. His alibi checks out. The relatives that hosted this niece and nephew from the Midwest, the the other Morse relatives in town that were hosting the young man and the young woman, they confirmed that Morse was there the entire time. And Morse left, I think, around 20 after 11. He catches a horse car at some point, and he says that the car he was riding on had half a dozen priests. There were like five or six priests that were all riding on that horse car together, and he saw them. And when the police go and they talk to the horse car conductor, the conductor confirms that around that time, he remembers, the conductor remembers that there happened to be half a dozen uh, priests sitting together. So there's no reason to believe that Morse was anywhere other than where he claimed to be. In other words, it looks like his alibi is airtight. Now, the public doesn't seem to pick up on that, or the public doesn't get to know that. And in fact, either Friday at some point or early on Saturday, Morse, who stays at the house for a number of days, in fact, I think he was there for two or three months after the murders, Morse goes to the post office either Friday or Saturday morning, and a crowd follows him, and they don't know that Morse has been cleared, either that or they don't care, because they see him as kind of the outsider and the likely suspect, and there's talk of lynching him. Luckily for Morse, a number of plainclothes Fall River police officers have been assigned to hang around the property for the following few days, and they're following Morse as well, and they hustle him back to the house. But apparently this guy's just oblivious to his surroundings. He has no idea that the crowd is murmuring threats and following him, and literally a hundred people or a couple hundred people are trailing along behind him to the post office, and he's just absolutely clueless. 
Let's get back to Harrington. We're in the house. Harrington has finished talking to Lizzie. He comes downstairs. He's in the kitchen and he sees Dr. Bowen standing by the cook stove. Bowen seems preoccupied. Now picture the scene. You've got people coming and going. You've got doctors arriving. You've got officers in and out constantly. Morse has recently come back. People are coming and going. And Dr. Bowen, who in the past 90 minutes has seen both murdered bodies, who is trying to absorb the fact that these patients of his, who he has known for 20 years or the better part of 20 years, that they've been slaughtered, et cetera, et cetera. He's standing by the stove preoccupied with a few slips of paper. Harrington comes up to him and basically asks him, do those have anything to do with the case? What are you looking at? Bowen looks up at Harrington and he says something to the effect of these these have something to do with my daughter's traveling plans. The Bowens had a daughter. I guess she was a young adult and they had been expecting her to come back home on the train from somewhere. And in fact, Mrs. Bowen earlier in the day had been looking out the window down Second Street, hoping that her daughter would she would see her daughter walking up from the train station. There was a certain train that came in at a particular time and they were hoping the daughter would be on that train. And she wasn't. But that was Bowen's explanation. And then Bowen says it doesn't amount to anything. And he throws the scraps of paper into the stove. He lifts the lid and throws them in. The only thing that Harrington can tell us about those papers is that he saw the word Emma written on one of them. And it's not sure why Bowen would have had any information about Emma on some papers that had to do with his daughter's travel plans. But what I do know is, according to one of the newspaper articles, At some point shortly after the murders, there's a reference in one of the articles to an interview where Bowen is brought down to speak with Chief Hilliard and maybe the prosecutor as well, or maybe it was the mayor. The mayor gets marginally involved in the investigation. But the newspaper article basically says, for some reason, Bowen was brought down to talk to the police. It may have had to do with these papers. They may have brought him down and said, what are you doing? You know, 90 minutes after these two horrific murders, why aren't you sitting in a corner wringing your hands and weeping? Why aren't you wandering around in a daze? Why are you worried about your daughter's travel plans? You've just seen the most horrific thing you will ever see in your life, and you're trying to figure out your daughter's travel plan. Whatever Bowen told them apparently satisfied them because this doesn't come up. He's not questioned about these papers, about the substance of the papers, about what was in them at any of the hearings. So I assume whatever he told the police satisfied them. Harrington also looks into the stove when Bowen throws the slips of paper in and he sees there's a little bit of fire in the stove. It's basically embers and he said it's it was about the size of the palm of his hand. So you've got a little bit of fire burning in the stove and this is around quarter of one. And this is probably the same fire that Bridget started around quarter of seven, 6.30, quarter of seven that morning. And the only question is what has been added to the fire over the succeeding hours? Lizzie testifies that she had put a little bit of wood into the fire at some point late in the morning, trying to get it going and burning so that she can heat up her irons. Remember, she wanted to iron some handkerchiefs. This house did not have electricity. There were no electric irons, as far as I know. If they had been invented, they would have been no use to the Borden family because the Borden family didn't have electricity. So in order to iron clothes, you had these heavy cast iron irons, what they called flats, and you would put them on the stove. But obviously, the stove would have to be hot. 
Otherwise, they'd be no use to you. So there's a lot of talk, a lot of speculation, a lot of testimony about what steps and efforts Lizzie had made that morning to get the fire hot enough so that she could get the flats hot enough so that she could iron her handkerchiefs. And in fact, she says one of the reasons that she decided to go out to the barn to look for tin or lead sinkers or whatever it was, was because she was waiting for the stove to get hot enough to heat the irons so that she could iron the handkerchiefs. So when Arrington looks into the stove, there's just a little bit in the way of embers. The question is, at that point, an hour and a half after the alarm was raised, 90 minutes, maybe a little more than 90 minutes after Lizzie went to the bottom of the stairs and shouted for Bridget to come down, how hot had it been 90 minutes before? Would it have been hot enough for Lizzie to have burned clothing that she had worn while committing the murders? Or would it have been hot enough for anybody else, anybody else who might have committed the murders? to have lifted the lid and thrown in or stuffed in some clothes and burned them? The answer is probably not. At any rate, it doesn't look like the police ever let the fire die out in the stove and then raked it out. So if, in fact, clothing was burned in the stove, I have no reason to believe, there's no testimony that I'm aware of, there's no evidence in the police reports that I'm aware of that the police ever raked out that stove looked at the ashes to see if there were any evidence that anything had been burned in terms of clothing that day. So that's an opportunity, again, that apparently they missed, they didn't think about. When Medley gets to the house, before he goes up to interview Lizzie, and obviously before he goes back out to the barn, apparently he went down in the basement. So he comes in and apparently he went down to the cellar and then went up and saw Mr. Borden's body, then went up, saw Mrs. Borden's body, then interviewed Lizzie. And the reason I think he went down into the cellar is when he interviewed her in her bedroom around quarter of or 10 of 12, he asked her about a bucket that he had seen with bloody cloths or rags in it. And that bucket had had water as well. So it was a bucket with water and it was soaking some bloody rags and it was down in the cellar somewhere near the toilet. Lizzie told him to ask Dr. Bowen. Dr. Bowen would explain. So this is 1892 sensibilities. In other words, what Lizzie had told Dr. Bowen was that those were her menstrual pads or her menstrual cloths or rags or whatever. But she was too embarrassed to tell that to a male police officer. And when he went to Bowen, Bowen explained that to him. According to Medley, Lizzie said that she had been putting cloths into that bucket for three or four days. In other words, she'd been menstruating for three or four days. Now, this is Thursday. She's not specific, but it sounds like if Medley's telling the truth, it sounds like Lizzie's telling him that she had begun menstruating Sunday, Monday, Tuesday at the latest. Medley also claims that he asked Bridget about this. What do you know about the bucket with the bloody cloth, bloody rags that are soaking? And he claims that Bridget told him, the first time I saw it was this morning. First time I saw it was when I came down to show everybody where the hatchets were. It wasn't there on Monday, I can tell you that. Monday's when I do the laundry. On those Mondays when there happened to be bloody rags in the bucket by the toilet, I always wash them. In other words, when either Emma or Lizzie happened to be menstruating, that what they do is they put the bloody cloths into a bucket filled with water, 
in the cellar near the bathroom. And it's Bridget's habit, it's her custom on Mondays to check to see if she needs to include those in the laundry. So she said they weren't there Monday, and I didn't notice them until today. Presumably, although Medley doesn't ask her, presumably Bridget uses the flush toilet in the basement. Presumably she doesn't do what Mr. Borden does, which is go out and use the outhouse attached to the back of the barn. And if that's the case, then she would have been going down there every day, a few times a day to use the toilet. And then she definitely would have noticed one way or the other. This is really, really interesting. Here's another bit of evidence that the prosecution decides not to use. They decide not to contest Lizzie's version of events by saying, hold on, Bridget says something different. Lizzie says these are menstrual cloths. That's not what Bridget says, or Bridget indicates that they weren't there for three or four days. They only showed up that day. Isn't that interesting? They don't do that. And I think it's squeamishness. I think the sensibilities in 1892, this was considered so disgusting, so unmentionable that the prosecution either couldn't bring themselves to talk about it or they felt it would backfire. They felt that if they brought this up and used this in evidence, that the men on the jury would be offended, that the men on the jury would think this is above and beyond. You don't need to do this. This is invasive. This is embarrassing to Miss Borden. This is disgusting. You need to prove the case some other way. And that may sound absurd to you. That may sound ridiculous. But this was evidence that was part of the picture. And if Bridget says, that bucket wasn't there, I always look for it. It's always left in the same place, right by the toilet. It was not by the toilet Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. And if Lizzie says she'd been using it for three or four days, that's not true. This is something the prosecution should have introduced into evidence, and they didn't. And in fact, to the extent that it comes up, the topic of menstruation comes up. It really only comes up when they finally get Lizzie's dress, the Bengaline silk dress, which I've already talked about, and they get the underskirt as well. They get both those pieces of clothing on Saturday afternoon. They find a tiny spot of blood on the underdress, which is like an underskirt. And it's the size of the head of a pin. And they do talk about whether that might be menstrual blood. And the doctor who testifies that he examined this spot and that he confirmed it was blood, he says, I can't tell you whether it was menstrual blood or not. So it does come up, but only in that limited sense. And that comes up on cross-examination. So this just gives you a sense of the squeamishness of, of our culture back in the 1890s. And it leads to one final point. And that is the disadvantage that the police were operating under in the sense they had no women police officers. This was something that was in anybody's wildest dreams, that there would ever be women patrol officers, women detectives. This, that, was, that was science fiction. That was craziness. But here's an example of how it ended up hurting them. If they'd had women, and that's, that's a huge if, it just was such a foreign idea at the time, it never would have it just wouldn't have happened. It was decades away. But if if they'd been lucky enough to have women on the police force, those women, I think, would have been less squeamish, would have been more likely to say to the prosecutor, you really ought to you really ought to explore this. You really ought to use this. And they also would have been of significant help when it came to the dresses. 
because we're not finished with address evidence. And the Ball River police, one of the most embarrassing aspects of this case from their perspective is their testimony at trial about the second search of the walk-in closet. And that doesn't happen until Saturday afternoon, August 6th. That is a huge problem for them. And again, it's partly because they didn't have a woman there telling them what these dresses were, what material they were, writing down a description, taking an inventory. And just remember that they were willing to use state police detectives' wives in sting operations. Why didn't they think to bring a wife or a sister or a mother or a cousin or somebody or a matron from the jail, a woman jailer? They had women jailers. Bring somebody over to look at the dresses and explain them to these two guys who didn't have the faintest idea about dress styles, about dress material. It was a mistake. It was a handicap. It was one of many mistakes they made. When we continue next week, we will talk some more about the day of the murders. We're, we're getting close to wrapping that up. There's plenty of other stuff to talk about. One of the biggest things that happens in this case happens on Sunday morning. It's one of the most important incidents in the case. We will be getting to that. That is as big, if not bigger, than the whole issue of the mysterious note that never materialized. So join me next week. I hope you do. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did, as always. Thank you for joining me. And until next week, take care.